0: Today's scripture reading comes to us from Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 22. Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 22. I invite you to turn there now. Here's what Luke writes to us in Acts 4, 5 through 22. On the next day, there are rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another and said, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Now, as you can see, there are two clear scenes in this passage, and there's a theme running through them it is that of power or authority. If you notice, the the Jewish leaders have all the power and authority at the beginning, but they end with just a whimper. While at the same time, Peter and John come in at a low point, they are interrogated before the great men of their day in Jerusalem, and they end with great power and authority when they declare to the priests, we will not uh, stop. So the priests go from a place of confidence to a place of uncertainty and end in bewilderment while Peter and John begin as those who are persecuted and end the scene in charge of what is going on. And why is that? Because God has used them. He has said by His Spirit, He has filled them with His Spirit to be faithful witnesses to Christ in this passage. And this is how the Spirit of God works in all all the world. This is how God works. He empowers God's people to testify and witness about what they have seen and heard in Jesus Christ. And that witness is powerful, as we see in this passage. It was powerful among the apostles who brought the gospel to the Mediterranean world. It was powerful among the confessors and martyrs of the early church who by their deaths converted the Roman Empire. And it was powerful among the early missionaries after the fall of the Roman Empire who brought the gospel to Asia and Africa and Europe. And it is powerful today around the world when men and women are called upon to confess that Jesus is Lord. And it is powerful too every time you are called to confess Jesus as Lord and when you acknowledge Him as your King and as Savior. So, if, dear friends, you feel inadequate for the task of witnessing to Jesus Christ today in our day and age, this text is for you. If you feel a temptation to stay silent and to hide that your convictions come from your knowledge and and witness to Jesus Christ, then this text is for you. And if on the other side, you are really confident in your opinions and think you know how the world ought to be run, this text confronts us and says the thing God calls us to witness to is what we have seen and heard in Jesus Christ and nothing more. So, let's look at the text today. There are two sections, as I said, verses 5 through 12 is the first part and then verses 13 through 22. The first part of half of this text is we see the power behind the healing the power behind the healing which is of course Jesus Christ okay and we'll learn who Jesus is in that passage the power behind the healing the second part of this text verses 13 through 22 shows us the power to speak about Jesus the power to speak about Jesus which we will see comes from the holy spirit enabling these apostles to speak about Christ. So let's begin with the power behind the, the healing in verses five through 25 through 12. We'll focus on the question first, that the high priests ask Peter and John, "By what authority are you doing these things? By what authority are you doing these things?" So let's pause for background. Last week, we studied Acts chapter three, and we saw that Peter and John performed a miracle. By the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, a lame man was healed. And remember, Peter begins speaking to the assembled crowd there just outside the temple. And in the midst of it, he's interrupted by a contingent of the priests and sort of the temple police. that come and interrupt him. And what do we see in that? We see that the temple authorities wanted to avoid a disturbance. They didn't want any sort of, uh, any sort of rowdiness this day. If you remember, Israel was at this time under Roman rule, but the temple mount and the temple precincts were under the more direct control of the priests and the Jewish leaders. And so there was a status quo established. It would have been very visible to you if you were on the temple that day because you you could still see the Roman uh, praetorium there, the the Roman garrison, and yet the priests were controlling what's going on in the temple precincts. So there was a status quo, and the temple leaders did not want anything to disturb that. And most certainly, they weren't going to let a new group of 5,000 people, as we hear here, to make a disturbance in the temple that day, whatever the reason. And so they came in and put a stop to it. And indeed, Peter and John had ruffled their feathers as it were, by their preaching. So if you look back at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 2, it says that Peter and John were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. In Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now that's not just they were proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. There's something else here, right? In Jesus the resurrection from the dead. What they're saying is that something is happening. The resurrection, the end of of God's purpose and plan, the fulfillment of God's plan for Israel is starting to happen right now. It's as if, as we say in our house, uh, because of Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is on the move, okay? And the, the temple leaders say back to Peter and John, excuse me, we're the ones who will tell you when Aslan is on the move, that's not your job. And so they pull them in overnight and then have this hearing on the next day. So next day, the, it says the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together. And if, if we remember from the Gospel of Luke, we know all these guys. Okay, so we've got Annas and Caiaphas, each of whom had been chief priest at some point. They're all family. So this is the cabal, the inner ring, the, um, you know, the, the center of power in Jerusalem at that time. These were also the men who condemned Jesus just two months earlier, okay? So this is the same crowd gathered together and are going to put a stop to this. In verse 7, they said, when they had had set Peter and John in their midst, the, the priest inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? What are they asking? They're saying, what are you guys up to? What's your aim here? Okay, what's your, what's your angle on this and remember though that Peter had already made very clear what was going on in his preaching he had just announced that the people had according to chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 denied the holy and righteous one and killed the author of life there was no ambiguity about the message Peter was proclaiming as if it was kind of like a nice little moral pep talk for the people not at all He's telling them and confronting them that you all denied the Holy and Righteous One, that is Jesus. This was a powerful claim. So this is a powerful encounter when the priests come and ask them, what are you guys up to? What is your angle on this? All the authority of the Jewish state is centered in this moment before these regular citizens, fishermen from Galilee, Peter and John. And the leader's concern, as in the case of Jesus, was keeping the peace, maintaining the status quo, no ripples on the surface of their um, lives. Remember how Caiaphas, the high priest, said this about Jesus, recorded for us in John eleven forty nine 49 through 50. Do you remember what he said? It is better for one man to die than for the whole nation should suffer. What's Caiaphas' interest? We don't want to ruffle feathers with the Romans. We want to maintain the status quo so it's better to unjustly kill one man in order to save all this beautiful stuff that we've put together. That's his interest here. And so, in a sense, they ask Peter and John, why don't you just go back to fishing in Galilee and let us take care of the big stuff here? This is out of your league. It's not your ball game. Go home, as it were. And so, Peter responds in in verses 8 through 12. In verses 8 through 12, and he's going to say that true healing is in the name of Jesus, the cornerstone. True healing is only in the name of Jesus, our cornerstone. Look at three little aspects of this next, next section. In the first verse, verse 8, it says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. So already we see God's at work here. The Holy Spirit is working. If you remember in Acts 1 8, Jesus had promised the disciples that that in not a little time later the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And we saw that fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. But is this is this the same thing? No, it's something a little different, right? Peter is filled with the Spirit. It's it's not the new coming of the Holy Spirit, nor is it what we see in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. In Acts chapter 6, verse 3, we're introduced to Stephen and the other men who are appointed to serve the church, and it says that they are full of the Spirit and of wisdom. So there, full of the Spirit means proven character. That's who these guys were. It's something you could observe over time. But between those two different ideas about the Spirit's work, we have what happens to Peter here. In this moment, he is filled with the Spirit and then speaks. And this is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he talked about the Spirit coming for, uh, for his people and how he would use them. This is in Mark chapter 10 verses 19 through 20. Mark chapter 10 verses 19 through 20. Do you remember how Jesus talked about this? When they deliver you over, that is when they hand you over to authorities, Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father that is speaking through you. And so that's what's going on with Peter and John. The Spirit comes and empowers this witness. He uses Peter for his purposes, and all of this is under God's control. Peter and John are not here by accident. God has brought them to this moment. He's put them before the high council. And it is also not an accident when you are confronted with uh, regarding your faith and called to be a witness to Christ. And in the same way that Peter and John are filled by the Spirit in order to witness to Christ, so also are his people when they are witnessing to Christ. God the Father leads and governs these circumstances and then gives power to his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the first part. Peter speaks by the Spirit. God is in control of this situation. Then secondly, the name of Jesus healed this man in verse 10. The name of Jesus healed this man. So if you remember in chapter 3, Peter and John are very clear about this when they heal him. They say, chapter 3, verse 6, Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give you in the name, what, of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So it's very clear the authority comes from the name of Jesus here just is his authority. It's his power. And Peter's explicit that this comes just from Jesus. And he means by that that Jesus is the center of God's purpose and plan for the world. He means by that, Jesus is the center of God's purpose and plan in the world. And he he, he explains that here in the text. He says, he begins with what they know in verse 10, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. In a sense, Peter is telling them, notice, God exalts the person whom you crucified. The person who you despised, God has raised up. You thought you could control him, that is Jesus, but God was really in control of every moment. God has declared the one worthy whom you thought was worth less. And then Peter turns to the scripture and says, and that's exactly what God does in all his plans. That's what God does in his plans. This pattern is not new. This is what God does throughout his history, and he quotes a Bible verse that everyone in the room would have known. Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Whether it's the cornerstone or the top of an arch, the keystone, doesn't matter, right? It's the keystone. It's the one we need to have. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He wants to say that Jesus is the center of God's purpose and plan. Just as the psalmist was surrounded by enemies, and yet the Lord delivered him, so also with Jesus. These very leaders, Annas and Caiaphas, were the enemies who surrounded the servant of the Lord, but who have now been defeated. If you look with me in Psalm 118, uh, Psalm 118 verse 22, we'll, we'll go a little bit before then, Psalm 118, verse 10. Um, Psalm 118, verse 10. I'll start there. This verse actually applies to a lot of things. Um, Psalm 118, verse 10. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Um, I often think of that when I'm driving in Hanoi, Vietnam, when in a motorbike with people coming in every different direction. But it's not, right, that's not David's meaning here. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Let's see how he says this. Skip a few verses down. Verse 13. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. And then the conclusion, beginning in verse 21. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And so this day, The day on which the stone the builders reject has become the cornerstone is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. God's work here is marvelous. It's a reason to rejoice. Why? Because God defends His people. He lifts them up when they are cast down. He takes the person whom others have rejected and uses that person for His glory. God does not listen to the general opinion. He doesn't take a poll of prominent leaders and decide what the consensus is. Rather, He steps into history and He vindicates His servants, even when the entire world lines up against them. The very one who is rejected becomes the centerpiece of his plan. The stone that is tossed aside by the builders as worthless ends up being the very cornerstone in God's building. And that is what has happened in Jesus Christ, says Peter to us. That's what has happened in Christ. Dear friends, Jesus Christ is the center of all of God's purposes and plans for the world. He is the central piece to any puzzle and if you've missed him you've missed the whole thing and the good news is there's nothing tricky here right this is not a riddle or an enigma it's not hidden that you have to climb a mountain and find it rather christ came and proclaimed good news to the world and even especially to the poor as it says and only a blind eye will turn away from him God is not hiding these things. In fact, in this very passage, how does Jesus demonstrate his power? He does so by healing a man who has been lame from birth. It's a good thing he restores health to this person and declares that salvation has come. Therefore, if you do not know Christ, turn to him. Do not turn away from him. He is the center of God's purpose and plan, as Peter testifies to us here. So, in verses 10 through 11, Peter tells the Jewish leaders that Jesus is the center of God's purpose and plan, and so it is based on the authority of Jesus, the name of Jesus, that the lame man has been healed. Then, thirdly, we need to get to his conclusion. In verse uh, 12, Peter draws his conclusion, there is true healing only in Jesus. Acts four twelve, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And you see that word saved? It's the same word as in verse nine, when it says, If you are examining us today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? The word saved and healed is the same term. Same thing but different, right? Same sort of thing, but different. One smaller, the other larger. The lame man was made whole and able to walk. And now, Peter says, there is true healing, true wholeness in Jesus, and that's salvation. The healing of the lame man was a sign and a pointer to the greater healing, the ultimate healing that comes to us now through Jesus and at the resurrection of the dead. Peter says, as it were, if Jesus can affect this healing, you can trust him for the ultimate healing, the healing of your souls. Now, this verse, Acts 4.12, says his, his is the only name by which we must be saved. And that is an astounding claim, isn't it? We must be saved. If you want to be saved, it is through this name of Jesus Dear friends, you will never meet a person in the world who does not need to be saved through the name of Jesus. And that exclusivity has been and is one of the greatest stumbling blocks for people when they hear the good news about Jesus. The Romans never understood why the Christians couldn't just worship their little god Jesus in private, but still worship the Roman gods in public. The Eastern nations, both classically and today, do not understand, wonder why Christians insist on exclusive devotion to this God, Jesus, rather than adding him to a pantheon, as in Hinduism, or rather using his teaching in order to give us a good life, as in Buddhism. In fact, for us, in Vietnam, the most difficult or at least challenging part of evangelism is convincing people that belief in Jesus Christ is all-encompassing. It takes over your whole life. It's not just a little part of your life. And in fact, this doesn't really come out for many people in Vietnam until they are asked to stop worshiping their ancestors in the way that Vietnamese culture does, involving lighting incense, praying, and and bowing before a family altar. Only then does the radical claim of Acts 4.12 come out, that there must be salvation only in this man Jesus, and therefore our worship must be directed only to the God of the Bible, and then in our own contemporary culture, Acts four twelve is an astounding claim and is offensive. So I can think of at least two ways in which that can be the case today. The first is on this word salvation. What on earth do we mean by salvation? Our culture will ask, "What good is this thing you call salvation for me in the here and now today? How does it solve my problems and say the problems of my neighborhood?" You can can pick what you want. I want to see an end to poverty, or justice, or proper care of the earth, or a healthy family, a fit body, or simply to get ahead of my neighbors. And Peter explains, though, that the final problem of humanity is a moral one. It's something to do with who we are as human creatures who have fallen away from God. And Pastor Darrell brought this out very clearly last week in Acts chapter 3 because Peter says the answer is... What? Repentance. You only repent if you recognize your own wrongness. In Acts 3, 19-20, it says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Your sins may be blotted out. So this gospel promises salvation. That is a renewed and proper relationship with the creator God, who is now called our Father. And we have to emphasize, Over and over again, that this is not like a new diet plan or an exercise plan or a get rich quick scheme or a blueprint for a healthy marriage or even an effort at finding your true self. Salvation is an admission, it requires us to admit our own sinfulness and seek reconciliation with God. And because we see that as the primary problem for humanity, we have to say there is salvation in no one else second then. A second objection to Acts 4.12 could be summarized in the phrase, how dare you? Okay? How dare you tell me that I must be saved in this way? How dare you? That's the great scandal of this verse, is to insist that it applies to everyone. In fact, we see it in this text. The Jewish leaders here all believed in the God of Israel, but Peter proclaims that something new has happened all of Israel's history is summed up into this moment when Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. Because all of God's plans have come to fulfillment in this man Jesus, Peter says, and because he was raised from the dead with power as a demonstration that this new life is coming into the world, and because he is now taken back into heaven and seated at the right hand of God and will one day come to judge the living of the dead, therefore... Salvation is found only in him. There's no other name of equal worth or value. So when our culture demands, how dare you tell me that I need salvation? How do we answer? How would Peter answer here? I think he tells the priests and the leaders here that what has happened in Jesus Christ is simply not the sort of thing that's up to our opinion. It's too great. It's too public. It's too open for us to deny it. Healing in the name of Jesus is not the same as declaring that chocolate is your favorite uh, flavor of ice cream, right? It is something that impinges itself on us like someone yelling a warning that there is a tsunami coming and we have to flee to higher ground. So when Christians announce you must be saved through, through Jesus and our culture responds, how dare you say such things? We respond. I know it sounds crazy, I know it sounds crazy, but something both apart from me and outside and apart from you has happened in the world, and we must respond to it. Jesus Christ has been declared Lord and Christ, and so he calls us to repent. So again, this was a shock to the Jewish leaders in Acts 4.12. It's a shock today throughout history. We need to be saved from our sins and this is true salvation. And secondly, this is, uh, Jesus Christ is no flavor of ice cream. He is the coming king who has entered into the world in order to save us. So that's the first section today, the power behind the healing. Now secondly then, the power to speak about Jesus in verses 13 through 22. Notice that it says Peter leaves the leaders, the Jewish leaders, speechless. They have nothing to say and respond. In fact, they just send Peter and John out of the chamber, and then they do what often happens in committee meetings and shouldn't happen. Instead of discussing whether or not what Peter said was true, they plan damage control. Okay, fellas, how are we going to get out of this? Okay, that's what happens in verse 13 and beyond. They circle the wagons and ask, how are we going to maintain the status quo and get rid of this problematic preaching? But there's a problem. A man has been healed who was lame for 40 years, and 5,000 people in Jerusalem have signed up under this name, Jesus. So they, they, they issue a charge and a threat to the apostles. They tell them, don't speak any further about this, and this sets up the response from Peter and John. So I want to look at two aspects of their response, which will then provide us with something we can take home for ourselves as well. The first, two observations about this scene. The apostles' authority is not in themselves. The apostles' authority is not in themselves in this, in this text. Now, the Jewish leaders noticed this. Look with me in verse 13, Acts four thirteen. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. The message of Peter and John did not have power because they were excellent speakers. It did not have power because they backed it up with extensive learning. It didn't come with power because they were recognized authorities in their community. They had never built up a multi-million dollar business. They had never invented a popular technology. They had never won on a reality show, nor were they drafted first round to a professional sports team. Peter and John lacked all authority, whether by birth or wealth or privilege or status. They're not convincing because their presentation is aesthetically pleasing or because they know how to time their jokes and illustrations. Where then is their authority? Entirely in Jesus. Entirely in Jesus. Their message only makes sense and is only convincing if indeed God has come in Jesus Christ. They speak only because God has first spoken, and his word cannot be ignored. And that's how they explain it in verse 19. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Notice, not only do the apostles not have authority to speak by the standards of this world, they don't even claim to have that authority themselves. There's no claim to their own intelligence anywhere in the passage. Rather, they speak about Christ because God has spoken in Christ. No other reason. That's first. Their authority is only in Christ, not in themselves. Secondly then, the apostles testify to what they have seen and heard. They testify to what they have seen and heard. Verse 20, it says then, um, at the end of verse 19, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak about what we have seen and heard. So what are these apostles? First and foremost, they are witnesses, witnesses to Jesus Christ, to God's work in Jesus. They're not salesmen, they're not pundits, they're not gurus, they have seen and heard one thing, and this thing has gripped them, and that is Jesus Christ. Their witness is not about something internal. It's not about their insight or their hunch or their feeling. Rather, they have seen and heard words and events that cannot be explained in any other way. They say to the Jewish leaders, as it were, you cannot tell witnesses to a crime to shut their mouths and go home. It is unjust and not right to be silent about what we have seen and heard. Were you not listening, they say, a man was raised from the dead, never to die again. And we are going to speak about him because all the scriptures, all the history of the people of Israel is now fulfilled in the work of this one man, Jesus Christ. And so you better believe we're going to talk about it. Because when God's people see God's word and actions in the world and in their lives, they cannot but proclaim it. So we see in in this second scene that the the apostles' authority is not in themselves. And that then, secondly, they are called to testify to what they've seen and heard in Christ. And so, my dear friends today, God calls you to testify to what you have seen and heard in Christ. So I want to take each of those two observations and now apply them to us both positively and negatively Your authority to speak about Christ is not in yourselves, but in God. Your authority to speak about Christ is not in yourselves, but in God. Now, to know this creates both great humility and great boldness. Great humility. Because whatever persuasive credentials I think I have, they matter nothing in regard to the content of the gospel, in regard to the gospel For example, a young believer in Vietnam once told me, it's too bad there aren't more successful business people who have become Christians because that would be a major help for evangelism. Okay? Perhaps. And I know that God has used people in high places of authority to multiply the spread of the gospel throughout the history of the church. No question about that. And yet, if your message is convincing because of your position your position will cloud the message. If it's convincing based on who you are and your status, the status will cloud the message. Because here, in in, in this text, in regard to the content of the gospel, we are all equals before Christ. Equal in authority. Either Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, or he is not. And so therefore, what we are doing is ludicrous and hollow. So we never proclaim Christ on our own authority. That's the first part that gives us humility. It's not us. But this also gives us great boldness. It means that the youngest saint is equal in authority to proclaim the gospel as is the senior pastor. A Christian high school student who knows Christ has from God just as much authority to proclaim Christ to their classmates as do their parents or their church leaders. And this is what has given Christians throughout history and around the world courage to speak just as the apostles do here. Is it right, they ask, for us to be silent about what God is doing among us? Have you experienced this boldness and freedom in speaking about Christ? When you testify to what God has done in Christ, you do not speak alone. God is with you in that. You are not giving your opinion or giving your take on an issue when you share Christ. Rather, you point away from yourself and toward Jesus Christ, the one who has been crucified and risen from the dead. And when you move the authority to God in Christ, you can have confidence that God is working and will use that. Now, there's a, there's a feature in this text. I don't know if, if Luke intends this pers- particularly, but if you notice in verse 19, it says, Peter and John answered them. And then it quotes, quotes what they said. Now, I don't think that Peter and John spoke in unison at this point. So in a sense, we don't know. Did Peter or John say this, or did one say it and then the other one interrupt them? Or you know, We don't know exactly how they did this. It may be that there's a hint here that the disciples themselves move to the background and the authority of Christ is made clear. It's not even a specific one of them who says that. Rather, it is Christ speaking through them. So you are called to witness to Christ not on your own authority, but on the authority of Christ. And then secondly today, God calls you to witness to what you have seen and heard in Christ. Like all good things, this both frees... And constrains us, frees and constrains us. First, in regard to constraint, our uncompromising witness, the hill we will die on, is only in regard to what we have seen and heard in Christ and not to our private opinions. Not to our private opinions. This calls us to know the gospel and experience it personally. If you have not lived through and experienced God's love for you in Christ, then you will have nothing to witness about. Do you feel how dead and lost is your own heart apart from the grace of God? Do you long to know more fully God as He reveals Himself in the life of Christ who came to redeem you from death? And have you experienced the powerful rhythm of confession and repentance and faith? In other words, do you know the triune God, God the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, who are all three working together as one for your salvation? And I say this because there is a temptation, and there has been a temptation, to make Christian witness center on our private opinions about what makes for a better life, a better family, even a better country. But let us not forget that we could create a seemingly happy family, a stable home and work life, a neighborhood relatively free from crime, and completely miss the gospel, the good news of Christ. So we must experience the gospel, first of all, for ourselves and witness to Christ based on what we have seen and heard in Him. And the good news is God reaches out to you with open arms, Christian, and invites you into this. He wants you in more deeply into this reality. He wants you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And so he, he, he calls you to commune with him, to know him. Remember what it says about Peter and John? The, 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 the Jewish leaders recognized that these men had been with Jesus. So let's know Christ together. Let's experience Him together, and God gives us His gifts for this through the experience together of the Lord's Supper, of life in community, of singing and reading and praying together, as well as prayer and study individually and on our own. In all of this, God invites us to know Him, to experience Him, and He has created this family, this church, as a means toward that end. So let's center our witness on what Christ has done and is doing for us and in us and for the sake of the world. And then God will make us like Peter and John who are willing and able to stake their life against what they have seen and heard in Jesus Christ. So God constrains us. He says, testify about what you have seen and heard in Christ here, not about our private opinions. But then if we do This gives us great freedom, and we see it here in John and Peter. Great freedom. You and I are not responsible to explain everything in the world or to solve all the world's problems. Christ calls you to rest in him and to testify concerning what you have seen and heard in Christ and then trust him for the rest. That's what he calls us to, and if we have that, then we have great freedom in this world. Because we know our Savior, and we know what he has done for us. And so I want to reference another story very similar to this one. Do you remember in John chapter 9 when Jesus heals a man born blind? The man born blind also, I think he's 38 years old there, this man who's healed who's lame, over 40 years old. Same sorts of of, um, miracles. The Jewish leaders also interrogate this man. They do it twice, in fact trying to get him to deny Christ so they can sort of push him to the side. Deny that Christ has any real authority from God. Here's what it says in John 9, 24 through 25. The second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know, but one thing do I know. Though I was blind, now I see. And that, my dear friends, is the call God gives to us as well to declare to the world that though we are blind, now we see. Now may God grant us grace to know our own blindness, know what has happened to us in Jesus Christ, and then speak boldly of what we have seen and heard in him. And so, dear friends, we will come to the table to communion in in a moment, in order to see and hear Jesus, just as Peter and John say here. In this supper, the Lord's Supper, this communion with Christ and with the triune God, we see enacted again our salvation. We who are hungry and thirsty come and receive from Him the bread and wine of life from the Savior of the world. So as we prepare now for communion, uh, make sure you have the communion elements nearby or step outside quickly and grab them and let us direct our hearts toward Christ for us. Amen.